Hi, I'm Simon Matthews. And I'm Darren Morton. This is Leaders in Lifestyle Medicine. The story behind the story. And welcome to another episode of Leaders in Lifestyle Medicine, the stories behind the story. Simon, I am very excited today because, and I say this in all sincerity, where our guest today has been an incredible mentor to me and has actually had quite an impact on on my life, um, professionally and personally. So um, I'll tell you who that guest is in just a moment. What I want to tell you about some of his credentials and why we really wanted him on the show. So our guest today is a, well, where do I even start? Uh, he's an advisor to WHO. Probably his biggest claim to fame from our perspective, though, is he's considered one of the fathers of lifestyle medicine in Australia here. He is a professor with incredible accolades to his name. He's the author of over 30 books, over 150 publications in academic journals. And it is, of course, Professor Gary Egger. And if you have um, if you have any association with the lifestyle medicine community in Australia, Australasia, you will have definitely heard that name and seen him present. And even if you're part of the more international community, I'm sure that you would have heard of Gary too. Gary, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Welcome on board. Thank you, Darren. Uh, it sounded such a great introduction. I can't wait to hear what I've got to say. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's a typical Aussie response right there, isn't it? Hey, Gary, you have been um, you know, involved and instrumental. You're, you're a thought leader, and this is one of the things that I really admire about you. You're always looking for the next thing, um, and particularly in the, in the health space. And, and lifestyle medicine really was that for you. I mean, it was one of the things where you were forward-looking at where things needed to go in the in the healthcare space, and health uh, lifestyle medicine became this sort of logical pathway for you. Can you tell us about how, how that started? Yeah, it's interesting you should say that because I was thinking about this interview earlier, and I I thought that you know my professional life started off not knowing where the hell I was going, basically, uh, just trying to get some qualifications and. Uh, able to surf in between from time to time because I grew up on the beach up on the central coast of New South Wales and Australia here. Um, but looking back on it now, it, it all sort of makes sense because I was always interested in health and I was always interested in helping people and sort of changing behaviour in, in relation to health. Um, I, my main drive back in the early days when I left, when I went to university was to, to get into physical education. And this is no slight on you, Darren, but... Uh, <laughs> I found at that stage, that, and this was well before your day too, that it didn't lead anywhere. You know, you basically became a PE teacher and that was it. And I, I was a little bit driven back in those days and I thought, well, I, I want to get a bit, little bit further than that uh, with what I want to do. So uh, where can I go? And I wound up going into psychology and then uh, psychobiology or developmental biology. Uh, ultimately, I went to Western Australia, did a PhD in developmental biology over there, came back, did a master's in um, epidemiology here in public health and epidemiology in Sydney and uh, then started to find my groove a little bit. But I um, went into health education, which was back in the 70s there, was the the sort of done thing to do if you weren't medically trained. And I, I never wanted to be medically trained because it meant you, meant you had to work too hard and you weren't able to surf. Uh, <laughs> I love but, the fact that you had your priorities you know, well in place. Well, I, I won't say that I, I probably wasn't smart enough to get through anyway, but um, I got into the health education area and then health education became health promotion and it was it worked for me because of the psychology initial psychology background and the ability to be able to use that behavior change 
in whatever it was that you were doing. And then as the years progress, I started teaching, going back into my first love, which was, was physical activity, started teaching um, fitness leaders throughout Australia. And Nigel Champion and myself started the fitness leader training program, which filled a gap then uh, between the uh, university-trained exercise physiologists and the people who work in the gym. Because at that stage, the people who work in the gym were just sweeping the floor and the exercise physiologists didn't want to have anything to do with gyms because they were in academia and other higher uh, callings. So th- that worked then for a while. And then I sort of moved on, as I tend to want to do, into obesity in the 80s because I could see that as the coming problem worldwide. And uh, it, it had just started. In fact, looking back on that now, we can virtually pinpoint the month where obesity started in the Western world. It was about the middle of 1980. And it corresponded with a whole range of different things, including the neoliberal revolution, and particularly Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan in America, Margaret Thatcher in England. And that uh, caused a rise in individualism throughout the world, which I thought even at the time, and I've always been the other way oriented, I've sort of thought more about the socialistic side of things rather than the capitalistic side of it, if you like, even though I'm neither one way or the other when it comes down to it. That led me into this whole area of lifestyle medicine in the late 1900s and early 2000s. And it just seemed to fit that gap beautifully because it was based around behaviour change, but then also had a physiological and and biological background, which I've always loved doing. And so um, it seemed appropriate at that stage, I think it was 2006 or 2005, where uh, a group of us from Southern Cross University got together and decided that we should have a lifestyle medicine group. And we came to the conclusion that talking about health promotion or health education didn't work. Doctors didn't get involved in that because it wasn't medically oriented. So we came up with this notion of lifestyle medicine and that sort of had a grab with doctors and that meant that we could get doctors in particular, but uh, medical people in general, into this whole area of looking at something that they didn't feel comfortable in dealing with and that was behaviour change. And so we started the association in about 2005. It sort of corresponded with the early days of the American Lifestyle Medicine Association as well, but they confined it to uh, uh, medical training. We, we said, well, we don't want that. We want to involve doctors and behavioural people uh, and different allied health professionals like dietitians, exercise physiologists and so on. And that's where we've stayed up until now. Gary, given given what you were just saying about the uh, the, the rise of individualism that you saw uh, those several decades ago, tell us about the way that you see lifestyle medicine addressing both individual and societal levels here. Yeah, that's a great question because we started off thinking that this was just a clinical uh, discipline. It's it's a, a clinical. I was going to say a clinical science, but it's really an art science because it combines the art and the science. Uh, we started off thinking that that, that would be confined to uh, clinical practice and to allied health professionals and doctors. I've always had the belief, and back in 1974, I always thought that the big picture is more more important than the small picture. And in 74, I gave a talk at a conference in Denmark. This was only sort of fresh out of uh, graduate school. I'd, I graduated uh, with a PhD in, in 1971. So I went to Denmark in 74 and I spoke at this conference. It was on economic growth and uh, health. 
And I thought, because I'd done a couple of years, which I, I don't regret at all, in management consulting. I learned a lot in those couple of years when I came out of university. But the one thing that I, that I was really disappointed about was this notion that people in that area, in the area of business, so I wasn't working in business, I was working in social research, but the people who I worked with had no conception of where we were going in the world and no conception of the future. And it seemed to me that being on this growth trajectory had worked uh, after the war and uh, I had a background in economics as well. Uh, and so I went back and looked at Keynesian theory and all the, uh, the way out of the Great Depression and so on and found that uh, growth was fantastic for the world after the war. But it had to reach a point because nothing can grow forever. You've got economic growth uh, is exponential and exponential growth by definition just doesn't continue. And so I went to this conference in Denmark and spoke about uh, the problems with economic growth. And I actually wrote a paper for the Australian Journal of Social Medicine, I think it was back in those days, on this. And uh, when I got to Denmark, uh, I realised I was the only person there that was talking about the problems with potential economic growth and health. And I showed this relationship between uh, showing that beyond a point, you started to get diminishing returns from continued economic growth in health. And uh, so, therefore, we had to bring in economics as well as sociology and these other sciences into this whole area. So, it, it no longer to me, even though we started uh, lifestyle medicine in the clinical field, it seemed to me like we had to join up with the public health field. And the public health field was more looking at the big picture and dealing with the population rather than just the individual. And I still to this day, and in fact, just today, I'm giving a talk at the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine on this, saying that lifestyle medicine really to survive and to have an impact in as an adjunct uh, discipline in in medicine, it has to expand into, into public health and it has to look at other disciplines such as economics and sociology and town planning and all these other things because uh, it's those factors, the environmental factors that influence lifestyle and it's the lifestyle that causes the problem. So they're all connected basically. So in my view, the individual and the, the group or the, the social aspect of it is one big thing. And we've forgotten that in general society, I think. So in this conception, lifestyle medicine uh, is and, in fact, needs to be political. Well, everything needs to be political, Simon. If you've read uh, the English epidemiologists, for example, back in the 90s and 80s, they were saying uh, then that uh, all health is political and it all has to be dealt with politically because uh, it, ultimately it comes down to politics and, and economics and so sociology as well as just dealing with the individual aspects of health. So you've been involved in this lifestyle medicine movement you know, from its inception, certainly in Australia. Over the past you know, 15 years or so, has it followed the trajectory that you imagined it would? And how do you see it moving into the future? It, it has to some extent, but it's starting to uh, split off a little bit at the moment, which worries me again, to some extent, but, but I, I think that there's still lots of hope for it because I think the people that are involved in it have got good attitudes and good intentions. And the reason I say that is that we're starting to see conferences more and more in lifestyle medicine that are spending their time arguing between whether a low-carbohydrate diet is better than a low-fat diet and, and, uh, or a, a high-protein diet or whatever. And we're arguing about the nitty-gritty of little things like nutrition 
We've done, as you know, uh, an analysis of the determinants of chronic disease. And rather than just the four factors, nutrition, physical activity, stress, and smoking, that a lot of people think are the only four things that influence chronic disease, we've come up with 15. And we've given them a an acronym, nasty malodors. I'll come back to that in a minute. Because we think that as Simon pointed out, there's not only the political but the social aspects of health that, that are important. And so to get into this uh, nitty-gritty argument about whether one particular diet is more important than the other, just, just to me doesn't make sense. This is Lifestyle medicine should be a systems model. It should be an approach that deals with all of these determinants interacting with each other. In other words, instead of saying, okay, you've got somebody who's got a problem with their weight, you give them a diet, you send them away, and you don't worry about it. You can't do that. You've got to look at the other 14 aspects. You've got to look at sleep. You've got to look at exercise. You've got to look at social relationships. The mal in nasty malodors, which is one that we came up with more recently as a result of working in Indigenous communities, stands for meaninglessness, alienation, and loss of culture and identity. And we have ignored that in lifestyle medicine up until now, these psychological components, particularly with Indigenous people, but also with alienated groups, uh, such as sexually alienated groups and, and also societies that have been driven out of home through war and, and uh, uh, disasters and so on. And the whole aspect of meaninglessness is brought to the fore when you go back and you look at um, Viktor Frankl's book uh, after the Second World War on men's search for meaning. It shows quite clearly that if people who have meaning in their life or have a purpose survive much longer than people who don't. And this doesn't necessarily come back to a theistic or a, or a deistic uh, approach to life. It comes back to just some form of meaning, and it can be in a family, it can be in your work, it can be a, a range of things. And Frankel knew that. He was a Jewish uh, survivor of the Second World War, but he said it's not necessarily a religious meaning that you had to have. And he, he wasn't very religious. He was a secular Jew. And he developed this process called logotherapy, logos meaning meaning in Greek. And logotherapy is a form of psychotherapy which reinstills meaning into people's lives. Now, Andrew Binns, Dr. Andrew Binns up in Lismore has been at the forefront of this working with Aboriginal, alienated Indigenous Aboriginal men in particular. And what he's done with people that he's working with in jails up there who've been incarcerated for drug and alcohol use and, and other problems uh, in, in the society is get them back to their roots and get them back to their culture and as part of that culture, get the, the ones who are talented in this area, get them back into painting, uh, Indigenous painting. And he's had amazing success with some of these people, and you should see some of the paintings. They've donated a lot of them to his medical centre up there. He's got them on the walls of the centre, and they are just fantastic. And it, it doesn't work quickly. I mean, it, it's, it's taken years and years for him to, to get around to helping these people get through their problems. And their problems generally all go back to early lifestyle experiences. And so the meaninglessness that I've talked about, you can take right back to what we call uh, adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. If you have an adverse childhood experience, and the Americans have developed a questionnaire for this, there's 10 different forms of adverse childhood experience that you can have that can lead on in later life to not only chronic disease, but the precursor to chronic disease, which we've shown again before, is inflammation, metaflammation, which is the rise in metabolically induced inflammation in the body. And so you can track these people now from adverse childhood experiences right through their teens, and then they start to get this inflammation. And then later in middle life, middle age, they develop chronic disease. 
and and it all goes back to those that me- meaninglessness that comes out of the adverse childhood experiences. If you've been sexually abused, physically abused early in life, then where have you got to go? What have you got to look forward to in life? Uh, and you develop this form of meaninglessness or alienation. And in the case of Indigenous, loss of culture. Uh, so one of the key things that we're doing, particularly with Bobby Morgan, who's one of our Indigenous members in Aslam, is going back to Western New South Wales, where he comes from, he's a Gamilaroi man, and working with men there to help them rediscover their culture. And we're seeing, I think now, some significant developments in this. These guys are now getting off drink, getting off the drugs, playing a most important part in society by by realising that Aboriginal culture, Indigenous culture, has got a lot to offer white culture, if you can call it culture. I don't think in a lot of ways we don't have a culture. I don't really have a culture like they do to fall back on, uh, and we've got a lot to learn from them in that. Sorry about the long-winded answer. Not, not at all, Gary. What, what, uh, what gives your life meaning? Um, it, it has been work up until now. It's also family and... Uh, and watching kids grow up and so on, I, I guess also it's trying to make a, a dent in in what's going on in the world. Uh, and it, it's very frustrating from time to time because you can see what's happening in America today. And if this p- podcast is used in the future, I'll have to say that this is uh, pre the 2020 elections. I mean, it's just a total disaster. And the fact that the environment is being ruined uh, that um, society is being ruined, that we are being divided uh, in culture, not so bad in Australia at the moment, but particularly in America, means that you know we've got no real future for the world to look forward to. And so it's been one of my missions to try and uh, do that all the time. And I thought that my best way of doing it was through the written word and through the written word to other scientists, other people working in the sciences, rather than me appealing directly to the masses because I'm not so good at that. And so I, I've tried and I've written lots of stuff, particularly on uh, lifestyle medicine and economic growth over the years, but it hasn't been widely received. And as the best example was the book that I wrote with Boyd Swinburne called Planet Obesity, in which we tried to point out that obesity is just a signal of what's going wrong in society. It's not predominantly a disease itself. But it was the biggest flop I've written, as Darren pointed out, I think 30 books and over a couple of hundred scientific articles. But that was the worst book that I've ever read. My my publisher tells me it sold probably 10,000 copies, which was nothing compared to some of the others. And, but he says it was just ahead of its time. And uh, I, I still believe that it's the best thing I've ever written. Uh, so the frustration, that, that was 10 years ago, the frustration that nobody read this is, is uh, really annoying. On the other hand, I've had people say to me, well, you try too hard. You're an overachiever. You're always writing stuff and you're always trying to do stuff that's going to change the world and uh, you're becoming too frustrated as a result of this not turning out. And perhaps they're right. Maybe I've got to steer a middle line. I I must say I'm finding this lockdown that we're having having through the COVID problem uh, not a problem for me because I've done this all my life uh, is work on my own. I'm not being able to socialise as much, which I I don't enjoy. I do have a group every Friday night here that meets to discuss various issues, but uh, but not uh, socialising as much. And it doesn't bother me in the least, as long as I can get out and do my exercise every day and uh, do my writing and so on, I'm quite happy. 
You know, I actually I have read Planet Obesity and I love that work and, and I've, I've heard you say before that it wasn't well received, which is interesting because the message in there talking about this whole idea and, and, you know, the root cause of sort of the ill health of humans being economic growth, but that the ill health of the planet is also um, related to economic growth as well. Um, yeah. That's, a, that's obviously been a really uh, important message for you. Are you optimistic for the future in that space? You know, when we I wasn't, at- you know, uh, and I gave a talk at the um, World Obesity Conference in Stockholm in 2010, and I presented this view. In fact, I remember working up to it the week before. I was so anxious about doing it because I thought nobody's going to understand this and it will go down as a real flop. And I talked about uh, climate change and obesity as being related, and I looked at the determinants the primary, the medial, the distal determinants of both and show that they were they went back to the same distal determinants. And they, they were largely economic growth, um, environmental issues, and particularly then, uh, or not then, but now, uh, human greed and uh, apathy uh, and issues that sort of influence those, those other factors. Um, that went over pretty well in Stockholm, with some people. I've given that talk a couple of times since to some pretty sophisticated groups, you know, the Doctors for Environment Australia and so on, uh, the International um, Association of uh, Cardiac Disease Doctors and so on. And you can see half of the audience just goes to sleep in the talk and they think, what the hell's this got to do with anything? So I almost gave it up again, as I had done before, until the British conference, which is on today at the moment, I had to record for that. I thought, well, damn it, I'm getting too old for this. I've, uh, I'm going to go for, for broke. And if they don't like it, they don't like it. So I developed on the theme that I talked about in 2010. And I didn't change it that much, except that I've taken it out to what we call a syndemic now, so that you've not only got an epidemic or a pandemic of chronic disease, you've got a pandemic of environmental disease or echoflammation that comes from environmental disease. And and I didn't do it, but I'm going to do it now, uh, is add also the pandemic of COVID disease. Because again, infectious diseases, if you look back to the determinants of infectious diseases, you take them right back and they're the same as the chronic diseases and the environmental diseases. They include uh, overpopulation, people living together, wiping out the environment so that smaller animals uh, rise to the fore and larger animals are killed off. And the smaller animals, of course, carry these viruses which mutate more quickly than they do in larger animals. And we see things like COVID-19 arising. And this is not going to be the last one. Uh, I think any uh, good epidemiologist will tell you that we're going to see more and more of this. So I think that we're going to have to deal more in the future too with infectious diseases. Everybody thinks, oh, these people are harmless. They're just looking at chronic diseases and they're looking at uh, lifestyle changes for chronic diseases. So we'll go away and we'll look at real disease and we'll solve that. But we've got a role in this and that role is is most significant. You might be aware, of course, that uh, in the US at the moment, there's a movement to say that the deaths that they've got, and currently it's getting towards 200,000 people over there from COVID-19, that they are they are caused, uh, that they're misreported because they're not really COVID deaths. They're uh, other uh, health problems like heart disease and diabetes and so on. But what they are not aware of is that they are COVID, but if you've got a comorbidity like like obesity, 
diabetes and uh, arthritic problems and all these other problems, then that exacerbates and increases your risk of getting COVID-19 by about three, within the case of obesity, it's three to four times. So infectious diseases and the outcomes of infectious diseases are very clearly related to uh, chronic diseases. And, and so we're going to have to, in the long run, at least be aware of the fact that we cover the whole gamut of health problems, not just simply chronic disease. Gary, I feel like um, I'm, I'm speaking to a true polymath uh, at the moment. Um, you know, <laughs> I don't know how to take that. Is that a rude word? No. <laughs> <laughs> We've, we've we've covered the gamut of uh, of medical science and epidemiology and and politics and sociology and and small animals, large animals, environments. Um, you know this country, that country, uh, Denmark in 1974 as well. Uh, we've been we've been everywhere. I feel like I, I feel like I've been uh, running around a city behind you and looking down all the side streets and and now I desperately want to go back and uh, and and take another look. So it's it's a great privilege to uh, to hear someone with with uh, with such knowledge and and also such wisdom in so many areas being able to pull all those together and and connect them up. I heard you quip uh, just a few minutes ago about um, about being too old for something, and I'm not I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to ask you your age, but I'm going to ask you this: if you could see a version of yourself sitting across the room that was 40 years younger, what would you tell him? <laughs> yeah, that's always the, the big question, isn't it? I, I've often sort of gone back and thought, should I have done medicine or should I not have? And I've ultimately always come to the conclusion that I should have, but I wouldn't have practised. The thing about having done medicine is that it gives you a key to a whole range of other things, and particularly in research, which is my particular interest research and then and then developing ideas and, and thoughts from that research and reading other people's research and doing it. And if you've got a medical degree, that gives you the key to doing that. And I, I regret that. But on the other hand, I never really wanted to be a doctor and never really wanted to get into that system, which is very hard to penetrate. And as a non-medical person, I've been very lucky in the last 20 or 30 years that I've been accepted in the medical fraternity to some extent because I've been able to add something to it. So I, th I think in answer to your question, Simon, I don't think I'd give my 40-year-old, and that's, that's now telling you how old I am, I'm in my 70s obviously, uh, any other advice now than what I would have 40 years ago. Uh, and that is just to, to do what you really feel like you want to do. I've always been able to enjoy what I'm doing. There's a, there's a book I was told by a doctor I was uh, talking to the other day who I used to work with up in the Torres Strait. There's a book called Bullshit Jobs. And she was saying that uh, reading this, it's written by an English doctor, I think, and he's saying he says that, um, that about 35% of people are in jobs that they've got no interest in at all. They're just doing it to to earn a living, basically. I would have thought that it's probably double that. It's about 70% of that. And I think I and you, I know you guys too, are in jobs that you find quite meaningful. And that's, you know, part of the the answer to to life, basically. It is. Hey, Gary, we want to thank you for um, joining us today. I, in all sincerity, I actually want to make, um, you know, just say on behalf of the the 
the lifestyle medicine movement. Um, thank you for the contribution you make. And your race is certainly not yet run, um, that you've got a, a lot more contribution to make and we look forward to seeing that in the future. But yeah, keep up the great work, brother. And um, yeah, we really appreciate the, the, the impact that you're having and what you're doing. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Darren. Thanks, Simon. Thank you, Gary. You've been listening to Leaders in Lifestyle Medicine, the stories behind the stories. Thanks for joining us and we look forward to you joining us for the next episode. This episode was produced by me, Simon Matthews, Darren Morton, and engineered by Connor Bowers. Audio production by Podstream. The podcast is supported by the Lifestyle Medicine and Health Research Centre at Avondale University College. Avondale Researchers, here for good.